In this uh, practice we've been doing now for nearly a week, in a strange way we're doing two things simultaneously that on the surface might seem not to go together terribly obviously. We're both engaging with something in a fairly total way and at the same time we're letting go of something. Now when we ask ourselves this question, what is this? We're also acknowledging that we don't know. And in doing so, we're allowing ourselves to leave behind all the things that we previously thought we knew, all the things we thought we knew about ourselves, all the opinions and views and beliefs and convictions we have about who I am and what's what. So we ask, what is this? And we open as wholeheartedly as we can to what is arising and vanishing in this moment. And at the same time, we let go. As long as we are still holding on, clinging on to something, we can't really ask wholeheartedly. There's still a hesitation. There's still a reluctance, perhaps a slight fear even, that as we proceed with this process of inquiry, we challenge ourselves at greater and greater layers of, of depth, of our own system of holding ourselves in place with our views, with our opinions, and so on. And so this twofold process simultaneously begins to engage an opening to what is happening and at the same time a releasing of the past of what's formed us of what's comforted us of what has provided us with a sense of position with a sense of place and Buddhism or whatever religious beliefs we may have, or philosophical or political beliefs we may have, these can be just as much as not an obstacle as anything else. And I think Zen is quite good in many of these dialogues of, um, of challenging uh, the very um, attachment we have to the practice of Zen, or the practice of the Dharma, or the practice of Buddhism. Because that too can quite easily become another prop, another support for our ego, for our sense of who we are, what our place is. It may be very helpful. But nonetheless, it can serve as yet another break, yet another impediment to really being able to ask with the 
totality of ourselves, what on earth is this? Now, if we think of it in that way, we're also, I think, moving along a path, and in fact, the very path that the Buddha outlined in his first discourse called the, uh, the Turning of the Wheel of Dhamma, which is a short two-page sutta, in which he presents the four noble truths, or, as I prefer to translate it, four ennobling truths. Now, I remember always being a little bit puzzled as to why in Zen, and this is certainly true in the monastery where we trained in Korea, there's certainly a lot about the Buddha and his awakening, and there's Buddha images everywhere, but you rarely hear about the Four Noble Truths. You rarely hear the Zen master giving a long talk about suffering, for example, or craving. That language somehow is not central to the discourse that has evolved in the development of Zen Buddhism. But it seems to me, the more I think about both the, uh, the Four Noble Truths and also as I pursue this practice, that in fact we're talking about the same process in simply a rather different form of words. Now, remember that these four truths the Buddha speaks of, which are are suffering, craving, cessation, and the path, are not four axioms that we are asked to somehow believe in. But rather the Buddha presented them as four tasks to be performed. Well, in fact, he said to be recognized, to be performed, and to be completed. And each truth has or calls forth a particular task. When he spoke of dukkha or suffering, he said suffering is to be fully known. When he then spoke of craving, which is understood as the origin of suffering, He said, craving is something to be let go of. Now here we have, in fact, the same same tension. Fully knowing something and letting go of something. And when we ask, what does it mean to fully know suffering? It doesn't mean that we acquire some kind of encyclopedic knowledge of human misery. It rather refers to a particular way of knowing, a particular um, 
way in which we embrace and we address the whole issue of pain. And again, this is not just pain in terms of a pain in my knee or a headache or a worry or an anxiety, but this is pain, this is suffering, this is dukkha in the widest sense of the tragic dimension of life. The fact that we are born, and once we are born, we will inevitably age, be subject to sickness, and will die. And here again, I think we can see a link with Zen, in that when it's sometimes explained what is it that we ask, what is it about, what is the this of what is this, this refers to, as they say in Chinese, the great matter of birth and death. In other words, dukkha. So when we're asking what is this, we are in fact practicing the first noble truth, the first ennobling truth. We, we, we are engaging with the practice of embracing suffering. And I'm sure for many of us that's perhaps what's come up during this week at times, or perhaps it's been a kind of undercurrent, a a backdrop against which the whole practice has, has been performed. When I ask myself, what is this? I open myself to the suffering of my life. I open myself to the transience of things. When I listen to sounds, when I observe my breath, when I feel my body sitting on the cushion, I'm aware of how it's fleeting, of how it's changing, how it's here one moment and gone the next. And I'm perhaps aware also that when I open myself in this way, I somehow touch what is most poignant, perhaps most um, difficult to put into words about my humanity or, as Buddhists might say, my sentient beingness. The fact of breathing, the fact of being conscious, the fact of sitting and walking, with all its aches and pains, with its uncertainties, with its regrets. And that anxious, worrying mind that is, keeps proliferating more I more concerns about what am I going to do when I leave the retreat? How am I going to resolve this particular problem when I get home? How am I going to come to terms with this, with this grief that I'm feeling? And again, we shouldn't think that these things are somehow to be brushed aside in favor of some kind of Zen experience. But rather, this is where the practice, the meditation, the questioning, this is where it comes to rest. It comes to rest in dukkha. It comes to rest in this experience of our life as as flawed in some way, imperfect, shifting, unreliable, and ultimately mortal 
and fragile and frail. So when we ask, what is this? We're embracing that sense of ourselves. And of course, and of course it's not just my dukkha, my pain, my suffering. As human creatures, we live enmeshed in relationships with others, with other people, with other forms of life. That as we open ourselves to this question of what is this life, invariably it spills beyond the borders of my own private and personal concerns. And it, it, it brings to us also the sense that suffering, that dukkha, is shared by all creatures. There's a sense of empathy perhaps even in this room. It may be that you sense another person who's walking round the cushions or sitting there maybe with tears on their face. And there's an empathy there. There's a, a heartfelt opening also to, to the fact that each of us in this room is experiencing our, our life, not always as just a bundle of fun, but as something tragic. But the tragedy is not depressing. In a strange way, the sense of the tragic also is an experience of depth, an experience of, of going beyond the surface appearances of things. And we all like to put on a nice face. But in this sort of practice, with the kind of honesty each of us brings to bear, there's also an encounter empathetically with each other's difficulties and traumas and pains and anxieties. And it's in this, in this fully knowing dukkha that we begin to let go of craving and grasping, the second truth. It's not as though the first truth, fully knowing dukkha, is exercise number one. And we do that for a while until we pass, get someone saying, yes, you've done that, now you can go to the next one. These four truths, if we think of them as a series of tasks rather than as a series of axioms to believe or disbelieve, they then blur one into the other. That, let, that fully knowing dukkha, embracing suffering, organically and naturally leads to a falling away of a certain relationship to life one that's premised on trying to get what we want, trying to get rid of what we don't like, and thereby manipulating the elements of our world in such a way that we achieve the ideal situation where I'm going to be happy ever after. In other words, grasping and craving is very much about securing one's sense of place, securing one's sense of ego identity. It's, it's, it, it preserves this alienation in which we're cut off from the ground 
of our lives. And that ground is impermanence and pain, selflessness, contingency, ambiguity, the flow of life itself, the great matter of birth and death. So to ask what is this, and at the same time to let go in unknowing, is just another way, I feel, of embracing suffering and letting go of grasping. In other words, of practicing the first two truths. This also, I think, helps us to understand what is meant by another term that is very um, widespread in the Buddhist world, and that is this idea of emptiness. And I remember for many years I, I had the idea that emptiness was something you had to meditate on or was something through meditation you would one day arrive at. You would have a direct, non-conceptual understanding of emptiness. But I don't think it works like that. I think that description is somewhat too cognitively biased and rather cerebral. There's a verse in the, the Mula Madhyamaka Karikas of Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna is, um, in a sense, one of the great Indian Buddhist philosophers whose writings, in a sense, lay the ground for the whole philosophy of emptiness that then developed later. Nagarjuna, by the way, is also considered to be the 13th patriarch of Chan, or Zen. So again, there's a definite crossover here. But in one of his verses, he explains emptiness like this. He says, Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. Emptiness is letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. So in other words, emptiness is not in any sense at all some kind of state, some kind of mystical thing, some kind of great big cosmic void out of which everything arises and disappears. Emptiness is, again, a process. I think it would be far more helpful to talk of it as an emptying, a letting go of opinions, a dropping away of grasping, rather than to hypostasize it as a kind of ultimate reality. Again, it's often presented that way. But remember, the Buddha um, in, the, in the Pali Canon never uses these words, ultimate reality or relative reality. That's a much later development in Buddhist philosophical thought. 
In Zen you find this too, the ultimate and the relative, the absolute and the relative. I don't think it's very helpful, frankly, that emptiness is not describing some deeper or truer or more ultimate truth or reality, but rather is once more a way of describing the process of letting go and opening up to the contingency of the world. Nagarjuna describes emptiness as a a synonym for paticca samupada, conditioned arising or dependent origination. The two, he says, are exactly the same. They're just different ways, a more positive and a more negative way of describing the same thing. So when we embrace the contingency of our life, the impermanence of our life, the ambiguity of our life, the tragedy of our life, we're also letting go of opinions and views and concepts and beliefs about how it should be or what I am. So again we find this same process at work, both an an embrace of our ground, our contingent, conditional ground, ever fleeting, ever flying away, never standing still, breaking down, re-emerging. And at the same time, as we do that, as as we open to that ground, that in itself releases us from fixed opinions and obsessions. Elsewhere in his text, Nagarjuna says, the one who sees contingency or conditioned arising, sees suffering, craving, cessation, and the path. In other words, this idea of of contingent arising, the impermanence, the connectedness, the unfolding of life, is in fact built into the structure of the four truths themselves. That fully knowing suffering is the condition that gives rise to the letting go of grasping, and the letting go of grasping is the condition that gives rise to the stopping of grasping. And that's nibbana, that's nirvana, the stopping of grasping. It may just be momentary. I think it's similar to what in Zen is called satori or breakthrough, kensho. In Theravada Buddhism it's called entering the stream. In the Tibetan tradition it's called tonglam, which means the path of vision. And that, that stopping, that experience of, of nibbana, of not grasping, is the condition that gives rise to the Eightfold Path, to the path itself. We'll come back to that. Now, where can we find that sort of language in Zen? Well, let me tell you another 
koan. This is a koan that concerns the the um, the founder of Zen in China, that is the Indian monk uh, Bodhidharma. And as I think we've already mentioned, when Bodhidharma arrived in China, probably in the 6th century, he went and stayed on Mount Song, which is where Huai Zhang left to go and see Huineng. And while he was out on Mount Song, Mount, yeah, Mount Song, 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 I've forgotten, Song, he went into retreat and he famously uh, went into a cave up on the mountain and there he spent, they say, nine years staring at the wall, which is why, why we stare at the wall now. And in order to prevent himself falling asleep, he cut off his eyelids. That's probably a little bit exaggerated. But I think it's a way of saying that he practiced very, very hard. Now, while he was doing this one winter, and it gets pretty cold up on Mount Song in the winter. Um, We've been there, actually, in January. You can still see Bodhidharma's cave. Uh, It's where the Shaolin Temple is for the aficionados of Chinese martial arts, which was founded by Bodhidharma, supposedly. Anyway, Bodhidharma sitting in his cave staring at his wall and a Chinese monk called Hui Ko uh, comes up to see him. So he climbs up the mountain, he, he wades through the snow and there's a very beautiful uh, Song Dynasty painting that describes this moment and Hui Ko is apparently, again it's a bit exaggerated, he, to show his, uh, his fervour and his devotion to his teacher, he cuts off his arm. And in this painting, you have him holding up his arm, looking a bit grim. (laughs) And then he calls out to Bodhidharma. He says, Master, Master, please, set my mind at rest. And Bodhidharma says, okay, you bring me your mind, I'll set it at rest for you. So Hueco, in arm in hand, <laughs> trudges back through the snow to wherever he's staying. And then sometime later, we don't know how long, he comes back to the cave and he says, um, I've looked everywhere for my mind, but I can't find it. And Bodhidharma replies, You see? I've set it to rest for you. (laughs) Now, this is, again, a very picaresque story. I think it's a very powerful story. And it is, in fact, a rather Chinese way of describing the meditation on emptiness. For Tsongkhapa who is the founder of the the Geluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, who lived in the late 14th, early 15th century. For Tsongkhapa, the the understanding of um, emptiness was the realization that everything is fundamentally unfinished. 
unfindable. Unfindable. No matter how much we peer into, probe into anything, be it ourself, be it a table, be it our mind, we'll just keep going forever. We won't arrive at something, and something sort of solid or quasi-solid, and be able to say, ah, now, at the end of my quest, I have come to this great realization that this is my true self, or this is the nature of my mind, or this is what the table really is. For Tsongkhapa, for Nagarjuna, for the Buddha, for Bodhidharma, there is no end to this quest. But nor does one arrive at nothing. You just keep on going. Wherever you arrive, there will be something else that can then be put into question. In fact, I think what Tsongkhapa calls the Dundan Chajigi Rikpa in Tibetan, which means the the inquiry into the ultimate of things, or the ultimate inquiry into things, is very similar to this question, what is this? It's an ultimate inquiry. And to pursue that inquiry will lead us into what we might call the infinity of things. There's nothing ultimately we can grasp and say this is where the search stops. But nor do we just end up in nothing. It's very similar in many respects, I think, to the way or the story through the 20th century and now coming into our own century of the search for the ultimate constituents of matter. We start by atoms, and then when they find they're able to recognize and identify atoms, they realize atoms are not just little lumpy things, but there's a nucleus, and there's a proton, and there's an electron. And when they probe into those little bits, they find that there's even weirder stuff beneath the surface. There's quadrons, and leptons, and hadons, and quarks, and klingons, and whatever. (laughs) And now, of course, they're realizing that actually even when we got to what we thought were the ultimate constituents of matter, the math still doesn't work to explain how um, the universe functions, which is apparently what it should lead us to. So now they're proposing something called superstring theory. But in order to empirically test... Uh, the superstring theory, you'd have to build a particle accelerator about the size of Texas. So it ain't going to happen next week. But what's curious about this process is that it mirrors, so far, the same idea. That the more you pursue these ultimate questions, the more you just keep going. And my hunch is that we'll go on forever. That there's something infinite in these things, something irreducible, something we cannot grasp or stop at. A kind of openness, a radical openness in the very structure of being itself. Now, I might be wrong, of course. Maybe one day the scientists will say, we've got it. 
This is it. This is the ultimate constituent of matter. It's called Joe, or whatever <laughs> they decide to name it. <laughs> but somehow I doubt it. But in any case, that's moving slightly away from our theme. The point is that that serves, I think, as a, a useful analogy for this idea of emptying, this idea of inquiring. And again, it has, I think, it's helpful in that um, we don't come up with an ultimate answer. That when we say, for example, in this practice, not to come up with an answer, we're more concerned with the path of inquiry that this question can open up. To the point where once the answer-giving habit of the mind gets burnt off, and I can assure you at a certain point, you'll just give up trying to find an answer, you then begin to enjoy and appreciate and value the, 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 the inquiry itself, the quest itself, the search itself. That's enough. We don't need to fix it with some sort of concept or some belief system or some theory or some answer. That in a way we live this practice by constantly being open to the strangeness, to the unpin-down ability of life itself. An expression the Dalai Lama uses when he gives lectures on shunyata or emptiness. He says, um, he says, which means there's no finger-putting place. There's nothing you can put your finger on. Wherever you look, it'll dissolve, break up into components, each of which can then be further inquired into. It's like one of these fractal Mandelbrown set things that just you go to any given point and these beautiful curly cues, paisley patterns begin just to unfold again, holographically. And I feel the sense of, of emptiness, the sense of emptying, the sense of inquiry is all, I think, suggested, I wouldn't say described, but suggested by these images. Now what this also leads us to, I think, is to the question that someone raised, the lady who's unfortunately had to leave yesterday, when, when, when she said, isn't it our true nature that we are wise and compassionate, that wisdom and compassion are our true nature? Or this very popular idea of the Buddha nature, that within us somewhere there is a kind of ground of wisdom, of compassion, of love, of, of Buddhahood, just some, some, somehow covered over, obscured, waiting to be um, unwrapped or pierced into. But that way of thinking, although it might be useful in a sort of inspirational way, in other words... To, to, to have the confidence that, yes, although I feel confused, I feel um, selfish, I feel 
a mess. Nonetheless, inside me there is wisdom, there is compassion, there is enlightenment. That can be inspiring. But I think we run into great difficulties if we then set that up as a, uh, as a description of, 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 of the human being, of human nature. I don't think there is such a thing as human nature. And I think we could run perhaps a much more compelling argument by saying that greed, hatred and delusion is our true nature. And we all probably know that if our privileges, if our comforts in this, in, in our bourgeois society were suddenly removed and it became a struggle for, the, for, for sheer survival, I wonder how much we would act out of wisdom and compassion. I suspect our true nature would shine forth red in tooth and claw. So this, I think, is in keeping with what we've been saying, that, that wisdom and compassion and all of these virtues of which we speak should not be thought of as, as essences, like essential properties that reside within us somewhere, in our minds, but rather as possibilities, to think of them rather as actions than, than as states, as thoughts, as feelings, as deeds. There are compassionate actions, but is there really a kind of innate compassion? I'm not so sure. But what this points to, I feel, is that the, the, the challenge of this practice is to is to embrace suffering, to understand to some degree what causes that, the grasping, the craving, and so on, and to recognize that we could live in another way altogether, a way that is not based on our grasping, our attachments, our hatreds, our fears, our desires, because we know that that just keeps sending us round and round in circles. We don't really get anywhere. We keep coming back to where we started. We get what we want. We're happy for a bit. And then that old ennui, that nagging doubt, that dissatisfaction once again creeps in. So the virtues that we speak of in, in Buddhism or in other traditions, are, as it were, challenges for us to bring into being, to create. They're not waiting there to be uncovered. That each value like compassion or love or tolerance or wisdom, these are things we have to do, not things that we find. And here I think we arrive at the idea of the path itself. In the structure of the four truths, and again they're very clearly laid out, one, two, three, four, we start with embracing suffering, which leads us to letting go of grasping, which leads to moments 
of openness, of stopping, of a deep stillness in which we're somehow attuned with the very rhythm of life. And it's from that moment that we see the possibility of another way of living in this world. And this is described through the idea of the Eightfold Path, which starts with the way we see the world and ourselves, which then leads to how we think and reflect about ourselves and the world, which leads to how we communicate with others, how we speak, which leads to how we act, which leads to how we work, our livelihood. And only when we have those foundations, those ethical foundations, those, that groundedness in the world, do we have a basis for then pursuing our deeper values. And these are then suggested by the ideas of mindfulness, of concentration, which in turn are not ends in themselves, but give us yet more tools to fully know or embrace our condition, to ask questions like, what is this? So the path itself is not a a linear process that starts at one point and then ends at another, but rather it's more like a feedback loop. It's constantly renewing and refreshing itself. It's a living thing. It's not a flat trajectory laid out on the ground that we just have to merrily step along. And as the Buddha said, the the maga, the path, is to be created. It's to be brought into being. It's not something that's ready-made, waiting to be discovered. It is something that we have to create. In other words, it's again, it's an action, it's a task. Now, when Bodhidharma, um, after he'd done his nine years staring at the wall, one of the first um, rulers of China who asked to see him was a man called Emperor Wu of Liang, wherever Liang was. And the great master Bodhidharma comes into the royal court and Emperor Wu um, immediately was very interested in Buddhism He says, what is the meaning of the holy truths? And Bodhidharma replies, unholy emptiness. And then the king says, but then then who's standing there in front of me saying that? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. This is one of the very early koans. But I think by now you can see where we're going. Again, these same themes. Emptiness not as some sort of state, but emptiness very much as um, a way of opening to, a way of being in this world, but without grasping, without holding on, appreciating things in all of their peculiarity, their specificity, as we said in the first evening. And such emptiness, Bodhidharma says, is not sacred. 
It's not holy. It's not noble. It's just the way the world plays itself out. We don't have to labor that with notions of, of, uh, of, of sacredness or holiness. And Zen is quite good at this. It's quite good at debunking the uh, pretensions of religion about burning the Buddha statues and all this kind of thing. All of that really is about stripping away the veneer of piety which often engenders a certain holier-than-thou sanctimoniousness, and just addressing the raw, brute reality that confronts us in our bodies, in our feelings, in our minds, in the world. And then when we ask, well, who is it that's doing this, doing this practice? We need the humility, as Bodhidharma displayed it, to recognize that ultimately we don't know. That there is no true self. There is, in fact, if we take this a little bit further, there is no God here. There's no uh, ultimate truth. There's no ground of being. There is just pure flux and contingency unfolding, unraveling constantly. Just a play of relationships and connections. And that is the field in which the awakening the Buddha speaks of is possible. In which we let go even of our attachment to the most sacred and holy things. We have the courage, we have the the uh, the. <clears throat> the willingness to risk embracing such a world, which can be difficult. We like to have the consolations of philosophy and of religion. But perhaps this path we're pursuing here, that the Zen masters, the, the Buddhist monks through all traditions have followed, is not a path of consolation, but rather it's a way of honesty, of humility, of engagement, of letting go, and then leading to the creation of a path, the creation of a way of life in this world that may lead not to heaven or to nirvana, but may lead to another kind of culture, another kind of civilization another way in which we live individually and communally on this earth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.